Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast. My name is Dr. Danielle Tate. I am the Maternal Medical Director for TIPQC. And today we're going to talk about perinatal mood disorders. Did you know that one in seven mothers suffer from a perinatal mood disorder during the pregnancy or the postpartum period? Today I'm joined by Chris. So happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. She is here to share with us her story and her journey during her pregnancy. Chris, if you wouldn't mind just sharing just a little bit about your pregnancy journey. Yeah, of course. I um, So I was 36 when I got pregnant. I always kind of hate saying this, but it was an unexpected pregnancy. It's not that we weren't trying, but we weren't necessarily. I just, you know, didn't. To even back up further, I, I never really saw myself as a mom. I was never one that like, you know, even in college or post-college or even in dating and meeting people, I never really thought to myself, like, I'm going to grow up and have a bunch of babies and like be a mom. I'm a really mothering person. So I think I was always told like, oh my gosh, you'd be an incredible mom. And you get told like all of these things, right? But so when I got pregnant, I I knew pretty quickly, I hadn't even you know, missed a period or anything like that, my boobs were just gigantic. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I've either shrunk my sports bra or like something's going on. So I took a pregnancy test very, very early. And it turned positive so fast, I didn't even have to like wait the 10 minutes or so. And I looked down and I was like, my first thought was, this has to be a mistake. So I took another one. And same thing happened. And I walked out to my husband at the time and I started crying. And, and these are not happy tears. I started full on panic crying. Oh my God. And I remember just going through the pregnancy. So I don't feel like any pregnancy is an easy pregnancy. So when women say that, I'm like, you're always like, you're not giving yourself enough credit. But from a health standpoint, I did not have any health issues. I was active. I was keeping up fitness. But I think what kind of started the slide for me, and I've spoken about this before, I I think a lot of people aren't aware that you can become pretty depressed during pregnancy. And I think looking back, that's something that really hit me pretty hard. And but it came out in kind of like weird ways. Like, I was mad that I was a very active person, just from a life standpoint, you know, active in fitness, active in like a day to day, I was really good at keeping myself busy. I had just gotten my real estate license, I was like, ready to like rock and roll at the time I had just moved to Tennessee. So I was like, starting this new career moved to Tennessee. And then all of a sudden, I became this person that only really had two good hours a day. Like I'd say from like nine to 11. And I didn't, luckily didn't have morning sickness, but those hours between nine and 11 were the only time of day that I could really get anything done. And then I would have to take a nap or I'd have to sleep. And then around four o'clock, 
I would find that I would actually get like evening sickness and just feel crappy. So then I wasn't able to like go to dinner or do things like that. And there was almost like this, and not towards the baby necessarily, there was this resentment of not being able to do the things that I used to be able to do. And I read a lot of books on, I didn't read things like, you know, what to expect when you're expecting. Cause I was like, look, I am expecting already. Like things are just going to happen. There, there's not going to be any like preparing for this because we're here, like we're in it. There's nothing changing it. But I read a lot of stuff about the postpartum period. So depression runs pretty aggressively in my family, especially in the women in my family. And I was really concerned about something like that happening to me. And I was very open with my partner about that. I'm really concerned about the postpartum period. I look to the future of like having her and I just see it being dark. And I don't know why I feel like this, but I feel like I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to be nervous, anxious. And it, it just, I felt like I didn't have the pregnancy that most of my friends were having. I was anxious before every appointment. I was kind of scared she wasn't going to be moving around. And again, I just looked at like that postpartum period as like a very dark time. And I did my best to prepare for it. Like I had food in the freezer. I um, reached out and found a night nurse, which I know is like a privilege. But my, my reason for wanting a night nurse, and for those of you that don't know what a night nurse is, they're basically someone that stays awake overnight with the baby. But I knew, um, not new, I figured I would be breastfeeding. So you're still like breastfeeding, like the nurse is bringing the baby to you, but you've got someone kind of like a set of eyes over the baby at night. And I arranged for all of that because I, I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to even remotely relax overnight. So there's all these things that kind of looking back now, and I, I don't even honestly remember if I was open with like my doctor about them, but I remember being open with my my husband about them. And I think even having something like for partners that helps them understand a bit more, you know, mood disorders during pregnancy, mood disorders, postpartum, because I think it can be incredibly confusing that all of a sudden you're living with this person that like you don't recognize anymore. And if you don't know how to handle that, it can be incredibly detrimental to your relationship. And so I ended up, my OB was very respectful of my wishes. My anxiety was pretty high surrounding birth. I kept having these moments of like, oh my God, I'm going to go into labor and what? Like I go into labor in the middle of the night and then we're rushing to the hospital. Like there was nothing but anxiety surrounding that. And I was very open with my OB about the unknown. I was very anxious. If I, I have a blood disorder that if I hit 40 weeks, they would induce me. And I had a lot of anxiety about being induced because you always hear the stories about the Pitocin and like things going wrong and it ends up in a C-section anyway. So I said to him, look, if we're not even remotely going to be looking like I'm going to be going into labor at 40 weeks, because this was again, a first pregnancy. I don't know if there's a statistic, but I'm assuming most first pregnancies go a little bit late. I said, is there any way that we could just schedule a C-section? And I don't know many doctors that would be like, yes, I'm okay with that. But he was, and he really, really respected my wishes. So I was able to have the birth that I wanted. And looking back, it's not even that it was the birth that I wanted. It was the birth that was the most controlled. Like I went in at a certain time. I went into the OR at a certain time. The baby was taken out of me. Like everything was like 
as controlled as it could be. So I did not have this traumatic birth experience, which I'm very grateful for. And I would honestly do that all over again. But I remember them giving me, Graham is my daughter's name. I remember them giving her to me. And you have that, I don't know, it's like this high, right? And I was like, oh my God, I've got this. I was meant to be a mom. I've got this fully under control. And that probably lasted for like, like one overnight. But I noticed that even looking back, I was like, oh, I, I wouldn't let them take the baby to the nursery. I wouldn't put her down, swaddled and let her sleep. It was either me holding her or I would make someone hold her overnight. And then I got home and the first night at home, even though I had the night nurse, I made the mistake of telling my mom I didn't want her to come. So she ended up going home before I even left the hospital. And I just look back on that because I was like, no, I want to bond with the baby. I want this to be a time where it's just me and her dad and myself. And looking back, I like, I cannot believe still that I like had my mom go home. But I went home from the hospital that night. The night nurse was there. I um, had like clogged ducts. So breastfeeding was insanely painful. I just remember at one point I was just sitting that first night, sitting on the floor in the shower, just hysterical. And so I had the night nurse and that helped a bit. But my problem was I noticed pretty quickly that I started to have these thoughts of like, like all day I would hold the baby. And I had a partner that worked from home, right? So even, you know, if I wanted to go take a shower, I would push the stroller because we had like a bassinet in the stroller. I would push it right beside his desk and be like, I need you to watch her. But I don't mean like type on your computer. I mean, I'd prefer you to have one hand on her to make sure she's breathing. What And, you know, which is not, I'm not going to say it's an irrational thought because at the time that was very rational to me. I thought that if I put her down to take a nap by herself, that she would die. So she was just sleeping on me 24-7. I wasn't able to do anything. I wasn't able to rest when she was resting or do housework. And this is, again, this is a person that like, I had support. I had a partner that worked from home, although he was having to work. I had a night nurse. I had a woman that would come in for a few hours a day. But literally, I would make her sit on the couch and hold the baby. Like, didn't want her to put her down. And it just got to a point where the anxiety got so debilitating. I just had so many trigger points, like the temperature in her room needed to be somewhere between 71 and 72 degrees. If it got any higher, if it was 73 degrees, 74, I was convinced she was going to overheat and die. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't even a question to me. Mm -hmm. If she gets hot, she's going to die. If I put her down for her naps, she's going to die. And I don't say these things like over and over to be shocking or surprising. I just like really want people to understand like these are thoughts that go through your head and you think they are rational. Another one was if she was asleep in her room, which rarely happened, but or if I didn't have someone overnight, I was sleeping with a monitor five inches away from my face, which is like literally a light. Like I would not turn it off. So you know, I wasn't, wasn't sleeping. And, and again, the anxiety just like ruled my life. I couldn't take her places. She was born during like cold and flu season. She was born in November. I couldn't take her places. This was 2019. So all of a sudden starting in December, COVID talk is starting to kind of happen. So yeah, it was like, it was just this, I describe it as jail. 
I've always had like a low level of anxiety. I think a lot of people do, a lot of women do. I've always, you know, controlled like the anxiety and depression in my life pretty well, like having a schedule, being organized, you know, there's things that you can do, right? Just to, for me, I, I wasn't on medication my whole life. And it just, again, I can't describe anxiety to people that don't understand it, except for it feels like you're in a self-inflicted jail and you're in this box. And if anything happens outside of this box, you are fully convinced in your head that something awful is going to happen. So now you throw in being a first time mom and that anxiety is like through the roof. And I've spoken about it a lot. What, what helped ended up helping a bit with the anxiety was when COVID ramped up in March, I was like, this is great. This is a controlled environment. We can't go anywhere. We can't do anything. I was getting a little bit better, not great about her overnight sleep, like in the crib. I was still having her do naps on me. She was the kind of kid too that didn't, she didn't help my anxiety a lot because she was very colicky, cried all the time, would have days where like she would just be in, like I could not console her. She was a really terrible sleeper. She'd get up every day at four. So I'd be in there with her holding her so she would sleep. But then I couldn't sleep because in my head, I was like, if I fall asleep with her, she's going to die. Like I'm going to drop her or roll on top. There's something that's going to happen. She would take two 30 minute naps a day. And that was it. She definitely made it a bit because also, you know, the lack of sleep isn't, isn't helping anything. So finally at 10 months with her. And again, this is all height of COVID. I I ended up getting a sleep trainer. And and this is all things too, that like when I say them, like I'm very aware that it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to afford, you know, a sleep trainer without it. Like, I'm not going to say it was easy for us to pay for those kinds of things, but, but I'm aware that like, I have a lot of support and that's what I'm really open with because I think it's possible. I just want to show people that even with the proper support, like these postpartum, like the mood things can really, it doesn't matter. They don't care. Like mental illness doesn't care if you have the money to pay for support. Doesn't care if like you're living in a nice house or not, like it doesn't matter. It's not a choice. Mm -hmm. So when the anxiety finally waned a bit, again, because I was placed in this very controlled environment, which is also not really a way to live. I found that the depression actually came in like full force. And I describe depression to people who don't experience it or understand it as it's not something where it's not a choice of being happy or sad. It is so much more soul crushing than sadness. It is like this boulder that is sitting on top of your chest on a daily basis. And you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, okay, maybe this is gone. And within 15 minutes of being up and out of bed, it was just like on me. And everything is gray and hazy. And I've heard other women explain it like that, which is actually interesting to me because you just look back and like nothing is in color. And the depression got really bad. And I've spoken about this. I was never suicidal, but I remember thinking to myself, like, wouldn't it be easier to just not be here. 
Mm-hmm. And, and to me, there's like a difference. And, and maybe there's not like maybe a doctor would say to me like, no, that is suicidal. But I never thought about like doing something to myself. I just thought about like, it would be better and easier for me if I was not here. Mm-hmm. And how am I going to make it through a day and make it through a day as like a primary caretaker to a, you know, at this point, she was probably 12, 11 or 12 months. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've got like an active child, you know, she's not a newborn anymore. So she's going to notice if mom's like not okay. And I would have to get up at about probably like 445, five o'clock in the morning to really like have an hour to kind of like psych myself up to function, like to get through the day. It got so bad. And, and luckily I will say about myself, I'm very cognizant of when I'm not okay. I don't always know how to fix it because depression to me, isn't something that you fix. It's, it's something that's always there and, you know, trigger points for it and, you know, signs of it. So I finally called my OB who had not, she had been in California. She's not the OB that I use for delivery in, in Nashville. I finally called her and she said, if you're calling me and I know what kind of person that you are, if you are calling me, you are white knuckling through your day to day. And I know it's bad. And I really have to, you know, give her a lot of credit because she was like, I'm not going to let up. I need you. Like, again, if you are calling me, it's bad and I need you to get help. And I'm going to set you up with a psychiatrist. I was really, I was not necessarily against medication. I was against myself being on medication because I thought like, at that point I was still breastfeeding. I didn't want to take anything while I was breastfeeding. I'd have to stop breastfeeding. And, um, it was one of those things where I was like, I should be able to, I can handle anything. I've been through a lot in, I'm 39 now, (laughs) been through a lot in my 30 something years. Mm -hmm. And medication is like, I don't need this. Why do I need to do this? And, um, I just remember the one line she said to me, she was just like, it just doesn't have to be that hard, this hard life. She meant, And so I ended up going on Zoloft and a low dosage of it, or what I I think is a low dosage. So I credit that with allowing my brain to almost rest and heal. And my thoughts are so much clearer. I feel like I was given back my life. And if I was going to be on medication, I was also going to be in therapy. I was also going to be working out on a daily basis, eating healthy, doing things that in conjunction, because for me, if I just took Zoloft every day, I'm still not really fixing, like it's allowing my brain to rest, but I felt like it wouldn't be really fixing like kind of the root of the problem. I went back to work. I started a new company and it did take though, it took a few months, I would say last May. So it's been a little over a year now, last April, May is when I started to really finally feel like myself again. And that was, you know, again, being on the medication for a few months, I feel like it makes my thoughts a bit more clear. I have no problem sleeping anymore. And I don't know that it's something that I'll be on for the rest of my life. But I think um, I get really frustrated when people are like, Oh, well, you don't have to take it forever. And I'm kind of like, you don't know how bad it was Mm -hmm. when I wasn't on it. So to me, it's not a bad thing to have to be on medication. And I think also experiencing anxiety and depression prior to postpartum, like says to me, like, this wasn't just 
a postpartum thing. It was made worse, I believe, because I've never felt like that in my life. But, but again, I feel like it's like given me my life back and I just, I have these moments and I feel like I'm so driven and work hard and I work really hard to be a good mom. And, um, you know, now I'm a person who co-parents. So 50% of the time it's like a hundred percent me. And I don't think that I ever thought that I could be that person. And the, um, to me, it's also really important that I share and I'm open. And although it's like hard, because even when I talk about it, it feels like I'm talking about a different person and even talking about the things that used to give me anxiety, almost like give me anxiety because I'm just, I look back now and I'm like, I don't know how I was living with that. And I don't know if you see it more. I think people are more aware of postpartum depression because they hear it. Like they hear postpartum depression or PPD or the baby blues, but I don't know. And you can speak to this more than I can. I don't know that people are as aware that postpartum anxiety is a thing. And I think they're very quick to say like, I know people that didn't know me would be like, oh, Chris is so neurotic about Graham's schedules. The sleep schedule is another thing. Like Chris is so neurotic about this or Chris is so strict with the schedule. And I just remember like hearing those things and just like, not at the time, but now I look back and I'm like, those people didn't understand that I thought that if I didn't do those things, my child was going to die. And and that's like as simple as it was. Mm -hmm. She, it was point blank. If I didn't do these things, she was going to die. And I can't describe to anyone who hasn't been through it, like what that feels like. And those like very intrusive thoughts of like, you know, if you walk down, I mean, another thing was like, if I walk down the stairs, if anyone walks down the stairs carrying Graham and they're wearing socks, they're going to fall down the stairs and she's going to die. And again, I look at it now as like, I'm so much different of a mom and a parent and I can actually enjoy parenting. And I mean, let's be real. No one enjoys like all of parenting, but I actually like have the, have so many moments now of joy with her because I feel like I, I'm not consumed with that anxiety. I'm traveling with her now. If you had even, and it remotely told me that I would be getting on a plane with her by myself. Like the thought alone of that when she was younger and when I was like at my worst, like it wasn't even a possibility. I was convinced that I was going to be living within that house and those four walls, maybe an occasional walk outside, which also stressed me out for the rest of my life. And it just, um, I think what I just want to make, you know, anyone listening, like aware of is that it sucks so much joy out of motherhood to have these mood disorders and to have like the anxiety and the depression that it's, it's really sad. And it's really like, I feel like I was robbed of 14 months of her life. And it it was so, I feel so strongly about not going through that again, that, and I don't know if this is too much information, but I actually in January had my tubes tied because I was getting also getting so tired of the question of, oh, when are you going to have another? Or when are you going to give grandma sibling? And oh, it's so selfish to only have one. And I, I always like would look at people and think to myself, I'm not giving her a sibling because I want to give her a sane mother. And that to me is more important. And the, it should kind of show the trauma of 
everything that I went through mm-hmm. and just thinking to myself, like, I can't, I cannot do that again. And you, you hear it, right? It's like, there's no guarantee that you'll get postpartum depression again or an- the anxiety piece. Sometimes it can be worse a second time around. And that was just not something that I was willing to put myself through. So for me, it was very like, and I had this done back in January. It was one of those things that it was like, night mentally a load off of me to know like this chapter is done and you got through it and you got through the hardest parts of it. And now I feel like, again, just a sane at times, a sane person that can truly enjoy my child and truly give her like the life that I wanted her to have. Because the last thing that I wanted to do was take my issues and put them on her. And if she grew up with a mom who was depressed or a mom that had anxiety, what was that going to do to her? And so I'm really proud of the work that I've done. That's not just, this isn't just from the medication, right? Because plenty of people take medication and and that's it. Like I have worked very, very hard to be this person and to be this kind of mom for her. So it's just, again, something that I think is really important to share. Women need more support postpartum. Moms need more support on a daily basis. And I will also say their partners deserve to be more educated on how to help. Because I think it's a very sad and confusing and lonely time for them as well. Especially if they don't you know, know how to handle it if they're not kind of emotionally aware, or emotionally capable. And, you know, living with someone that goes through this is just, I think, at least just as traumatic for a partner. Mm-hmm. So I'm just I'm happy to share my story. I'm happy with like the work that you guys are all doing in like spreading the word on this. I just think it's incredibly important. Yes, thank you so much for sharing your story and your journey. I'll tell you, there's so many points throughout your retelling the story that I can tell you is so much more common than you would believe in pregnancy. And just for you to be brave enough to first understand what's going on with you and admitting to yourself and then being brave enough to share it so that you could get the help. Thank so you. So all of my hats are off to you <laughs> Thank for you. your courageous <laughs> journey. I do have a few questions if yeah, you don't of course, mind. Of course. Let's go back to your prenatal period where you started to recognize these things in you. Were there ever a point, was there ever a point where you felt, well, maybe this is just normal in pregnancy? I, you know, I think I would look at friends and think to myself, why can't I have that pregnancy? So it's not that I thought it was normal for pregnancy. I thought it was normal for me. So I thought that I was the problem. Like, why can't I be happy? Why can't I get excited about seeing her. I was just riddled with fear and anxiety. So yeah, I I thought that it was normal, but normal for, I don't want to put in quotes, like a person like me, like someone who has struggled with anxiety and depression. I just assumed it was the way it was. And I've heard normal as in assuming that this happens to every pregnant person, especially a first time mother but never hearing it's normal for me based on other things or my history. Mm-hmm. So that's very enlightening. As far as the conversation with your OBGYN, I know it was not your GYN doc. It was another doctor uh-huh. that you became familiar with during the pregnancy. Was there ever a moment where your doctor opened up to say, these are things that you should be looking out for or screaming, or was there ever a time where you felt comfortable enough to express to him what was going on? 
You know, I did at my eight week appointment, but I have said this over and over and over, and I will literally scream it until someone listens. Eight weeks is too long because at eight weeks, you are so, if you are experiencing some kind of postpartum mood disorder at eight weeks, you are like off the cliff into the hole. You are drowning. Mm -hmm. And I know that some of these things, or I, I was at least. And so I think when I was speaking to him, I was open but maybe not even able to articulate how bad it was. Because again, once you're in it and you're not sleeping and you're, you're just neck deep in this rabbit hole, it really requires, I think, specific questions and a doctor who truly understands. So I, I do feel like a bit more firm of an approach would have been better, a little bit more, not no nonsense, but, but a little bit. Like, this isn't normal. You do not have to feel like this. Like that kind of, that kind of care. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I will say I'm an OBGYN myself. We do a lot of training to get to the point to take care of patients. And this is probably one of the areas where we don't get as much. Mm-hmm. So I can understand that softer touch because the one, on the one hand, you're saying, well, if I open this box, can I handle everything that comes out of it? Right. And then the second is, if I open this box, I can handle it. But do I have the resources for these patients? Right. So we are a slower moving wheel of getting to where we need to be as OBGYNs in handling mood disorders because they are so prevalent in our patient population, whether pregnant or not. Yeah. But we do have to recognize everything that goes into it that hopefully people like you and me will be able to to lead the charge to do it because our societies who do govern and put out recommendations for us as OBGYNs have said you need to see mothers one week to two weeks after delivery regardless of the pregnancy course, the delivery course, to screen for depression and anxiety. However, your insurance company may not pay for that. I know. Or you may not have the time, or that's the time the baby needs the first appointment. So mom is choosing to go to the baby's appointment versus going to her own. A lot of layers that I think are doable. Yeah. We have to have a united front. It's just such a complex, because all those reasons that like you listed, right? And Mm -hmm you know, especially the mom, like you're going to choose the baby over yourself. So the one week appointment for the baby, you know, everything, everything in that capacity. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. So going back to your in-house day when you delivered, you mentioned that a lot of the symptoms heightened during that time. Were you able to discuss that, express that when anyone on your medical care team, was anyone screening for anything? I don't. I mean, and granted, some of it, right, I might not remember, but I'm pretty good at, I have a really good memory, and no, I don't remember any of that. You recognized it in you. Did you feel comfortable at all sharing that with a new team of care providers? I'm sure the nursing staff, maybe even a doctor on call for your doctor. Was there ever Is this within the hospital? Within the when hospital. I started to feel, no, I, I didn't feel, so doctor, my doctor who delivered did come by. I, I do remember seeing him, but no, I, I think, and, and this is kind of like what you said, it's a bit of like a system Like you kind of have to fix the system. And I don't think anyone really knows how to do that, but yeah, you kind of got this revolving team. I was probably a person that would have done really, really well with having a uh, doula who probably would have kept checking on me. So I would say that's one thing where if I could look back, I would have had somebody like a doula with me 
checking in because I think they are just such a great resource for like what's emotionally going on with the mom, what's mentally going on with the mom. But we've discussed this, right? It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to afford that. And everyone can't. So no, but no, within the hospital staff, I won't say that I didn't like any of the nurses. It just wasn't a thing where I was going to feel comfortable being like, Hey, I can't put my baby down. This feels weird, but I don't know. Like, what are we doing about that? And I, I completely agree. And you've mentioned privilege a few times. And it's so sad to say that we have to call it that when it's just the basic necessities that a mom needs. Right. To be able to have a doula, to be able to have a nurse or time off for family members to serve as a night nurse, all the things that you mentioned. So hopefully as more courageous people like yourself share your story, we can really get those empowered to understand the need and see some change. But you're exactly right. All of those things are helpful beyond belief. And I know that most patients feel, especially with their first pregnancy, well, I have to do everything. I have to be super mom, not right. just mom, or else I'm not a good mother. Well, society puts true. that on us too, Very right? True. Like women are superheroes. And it's like, no, 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 we don't want to be superheroes. We have been forced to be that. Yes. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel like a choice. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen that meme where it's like, moms are like, we need more help. And society's like, but women are superheroes. And you're like, no, 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 but we, we just need help. And they're like, moms can do it all. Well, lastly, I just wanted to know if you would share some advice maybe that you could give to a person who's saying, listening to you today and thinking, I'm experiencing that. How do I get this out in a thoughtful way? So I'm heard or even my wife, my girlfriend, my partner's experiencing this. What do I look for? if they are experiencing this and how can I be of best support? Yeah, I think so. I've actually gotten that question a lot where it's like, I'm experiencing this. What do I do? A friend or a family member is experiencing this or a partner. And it's actually, again, it's why I'm so open with my story. And luckily I have a good social media platform where when I share, it gets heard. And I would say the biggest thing is so even backing up as far as when you're going through pregnancy, you as a person, this isn't like a partner, have have a safe person and say to them when you're feeling okay, I really need you to be my person and I need you to check in on me and I need you to be there when like, I don't want to be checked in on and I need you to not let up. Even if I'm telling you, if you feel like I'm not okay, I need you to not let up and you need those people. And I, I found that a lot of times when someone is that person, the person they're trying to help can kind of reject the help or get mad. So you need a strong person in your life that will say and do those things for you. I am here for you. I know you are not okay. I'm not going to give up on you. And I'm not going to let up like on this. And I said, it's kind of that like firm give and take because someone on the outside can see, you can see it, right? You know, when it's not, I hate to use the word normal, but you know, when it's not okay. And you know that deep down and just again, having someone say to you, I'm not going to give up on you. You are not a bad mother. You are just going through something incredibly difficult and you should not have to do this by yourself. And I think those are the most important things that you could say to somebody. That's wonderful advice. Well, Chris, thank you again for joining us and for all of your pearls of wisdom. 
Secondly, I would definitely like to thank you for using your platform for such a great cause. Thank and you. And the word out for us. Thank you. I, yeah, I just appreciate what, what you guys are doing and the educating and, and everything like that. And I hope that it helps more women like come forward with their stories to help other people. Absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee. 